Um, and it's, um, it's a movie about a baseball executive. Uh, it's not a movie about a baseball team. It's about an executive who uses uh, advanced mathematics to sign players to contracts. So you can imagine how hard it was to convince my wife to watch this movie, right? I'm a baseball fan, and that sounds boring to me, all right? But it actually was a pretty compelling movie. Um, and, and it tells a story that, that I, I knew because I follow baseball, but it's still a pretty amazing story. That was back in 2002 where a guy named Billy Bean was, is, was and still is the general manager of the Oakland Athletics. Now, the difference between Oakland and every other team in baseball is they have way less money. Right? Um, they're in a smaller market. Their owner is, there's no professional sports league owner that's poor, all right? So we won't say that, but their owner has way less money than all the other owners. And so what was happening is every year, they were, Oakland was doing a really good job of drafting players and developing, and as soon as they were available for contracts, somebody else would sign them and take all their good players. And Billy Bean just got sick and tired of this, and so he said, I, I need to create a whole new way to build a team. And so he hired as an assistant GM a young guy named Peter Brandt, uh, whose entire baseball experience was that he had a degree in economics from Yale. Um, and so they created algorithms, they created advanced statistics, they created uh, projections, and, and their goal was to come up with players that nobody else wanted, right? Because then they could be cheap and they could afford them. But that somehow putting all these, it's sort of like a, these, this ragtag group together, they're all going to match, their skill sets will match perfectly, and they'll be good. And so to do this, they began placing a really high emphasis on stats that nobody else in baseball cared about. Um, and then they placed a really high emphasis on stats that nobody else in the organization cared about. And so uh, it was just met with all kinds of criticism, all kinds of, of mocking, all kinds of critique. And now, as of 2020, it's changed baseball entirely. Literally every single team uses the strategies that these two guys employed to build this team. And so that's why they made a movie about it, right? And one of my favorite scenes of the movie is early on in the year, uh, one of the people that just wouldn't get on board was the actual manager of the team, and he just wouldn't play the, the players in the positions that they were designed to, to fit and mold into, and so it just was going poorly. And uh, finally, since he couldn't talk him into it, uh, Billy decided he was just going to trade away the players he was playing, um, because then he'd have to put the guys in the lineup. And one of the players uh, was a guy that was going to be an all-star that year. And this is the moment that the young assistant GM, Peter Brandt, started to get nervous. And he's like, Billy, you can't do this. Right, because if, if this thing that we're building doesn't work, this is the move that will get you fired. Right, you will get fired for trading this guy away. And Billy said, I think you're asking all the wrong questions. Yeah, I might get fired, at which point I'm a 44-year-old guy with a daughter I'd like to send to college with only a high school diploma. But you'd be a 25-year-old guy with a degree in economics from Yale. You'll be just fine. So the question you need to ask is, do you believe in this thing that we're building or not? Because if you believe in it, then I'm going to see this through regardless, no matter what happens to me. And I saw that scene, and immediately, like, I wish I could take my pastor hat off when I watch movies, but I can't, right? And I immediately wondered, how many people in life hold that deep a conviction? How many people in life actually believe in something to the point that they will risk almost everything for it? Do you? Like, what is it in your life that you believe in that much? What is it that you actually believe in, that you're going to ride with no matter what, that you're going to trust and you're going to put all your hopes in this morning? I don't want to start there with that question because you need to answer that question before you can answer the follow-up question, which is even more important. Right? What is it that you believe in? The follow-up is this. Is it worth believing in? Is it worth putting that much stock in? 
We've been doing this series called Reboot in which we look at our vision as a church. We timed up with the, the reboot of our physical gatherings here at FBN after uh, the quarantine. And in it, we're looking at our vision that we exist to glorify God, to develop disciples who live for God's purposes. And understand how we're set about to accomplish that. We've been looking at these five pillars that we believe God has given his church to be built upon. And the reason there are five pillars of our mission statement is because we believe in them. We believe that discipleship is something that we've been called to as followers of Jesus and that it changes lives. We believe that community is is a God-given, God-commanded blessing for our church. We believe that we have been created to worship and that the glory of God is our highest aim. And we believe that being sent as Christ's ambassadors is the most important calling in our lives. And we're going to close out the series this month by looking at this last pillar. That we, and here's what it is, we believe in the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, powerful word of God. And we're going to shape this ministry around teaching it to ourselves and literally anyone God sends our way. And so I'd like to start this focus just by asking why this morning. Why do we hold the word in that high esteem? Why is it that we teach this word every single time we get together? Why do we stand on it when it's read? Why do we build our groups and gatherings around it? Why are we willing to take on flack and criticism for it? I'm going to spend the rest of this time answering that. But the shortest answer I can give you as to why is because it's worth it. It's because the word of God is absolutely worth it. And to help us understand this, we're going to look at a passage here in 2 Timothy. Now this uh, this book of Second Timothy isn't a book, it's a letter. Right? It's a letter from uh, Paul to a young man named Timothy, and these two had a very special relationship. Paul was Timothy's mentor in the faith. He'd invested a lot of time in Timothy, he'd traveled with him, he'd trained him, and then he'd sent him out to serve in ministry as well. And now, Paul, in writing this letter, he is imprisoned uh, for preaching in the name of Jesus. And he is certain, when you read this letter, you understand Paul is certain he's going to be executed soon. And so he sends to this letter to Timothy, his son in the faith. And in this section that we're going to look at today, this is like he's getting close to the end of the letter. And so this is the most meaningful stuff. This is the most powerful stuff because it's legacy stuff. This is what he wants to leave Timothy with. And so I'm going to invite uh, Seth Wyram up this morning to read to you 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. And if you are physically capable, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Morning, Seth. Morning, everyone. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Thank you, Seth. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Uh, These are your people. God, this is your time, and so we just hand this to you, Lord. We ask that you would, you would speak uh, through this powerful living word that you've given us, that you would move, that you would convict, that you would draw uh, people to yourself, and you get the glory from everything that's about to happen. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So before we continue on with the message, I want to address the fact that there's a TV standing next to me, right? There's a few reasons we're doing that. Number one, uh, that is to really for the benefit of those who are still uh, worried about this virus and watching us uh, via live stream. Uh, that way they can see the scripture passages we referred to and it really helps them visually. Number two, uh, I can't promise you this, but if it gets me to engage a little more uh, with you, it might be a more dynamic presentation. And thirdly, it's an accountability thing because if I go long in the third service, Troy has been commissioned to turn over to the NFL football games. And so that'll keep me tight. And so um, that's why that's there. Um, don't be awkward out by it. Hopefully it'll even help your experience. But back to 2 Timothy, right? This uh, this section that Seth just read for us is the climax of the letter. Okay, after he makes, after this, he makes his uh, final charge and plea, and then he gives some instruction, and it's over. And so the letter has built all to these uh, verses, this paragraph that we're reading today. And Paul starts this section by appealing to what has already been poured into Timothy's life. And so that's the first truth that I want to point out to you today: that there has already been an investment of the Scriptures into the life of Timothy. All right, Timothy is a success story in the Bible. All right, he came from a uh, mixed faith background. It was less than ideal upbringing. And Jesus got a hold of his life. And, and Timothy did some really awesome things uh, for the kingdom of God while he was on this planet. And in this, right, it, it, when he's out on his own doing ministry, sort of newer in the ministry, Paul reminds him, Timothy, you didn't arrive here on your own. You didn't, you didn't get to this place on your own. He reminds him of who invested in him and what was invested. So look again at verse 14. He says, as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures. Two encouragements Paul gives him there. Number one, continue in what it is that you've already learned and believed. He's reminding him of some investment in the past. And secondly, remember who it was that taught you. And I want to point this out because I want to show you this pattern that exists in Timothy's life that I believe we've been called to replicate in the church. And, and the first pattern is this, that this investment in Timothy's life started in the home. Now, if we don't, we don't have his full history, right, uh, but we know enough about Timothy's dad to know he was a Greek guy and he, most scholars agree he was not a believer. And so as he was growing up, uh, we know from 1 Timothy that it was Timothy's mom and grandma who taught him the scriptures, who poured into him the Old Testament scriptures, and they made this lasting investment in him. Now, if we're in Ephesians 5 this morning, we could look at how God has designed the home and quickly figure this out. Timothy's dad dropped the ball. Because in the ideal design of God's, of the way God has set up the home, the father is to take spiritual headship of the home and point, be the most aggressive and loudest voice pointing his kids to the Lord. But at all times, not just in Timothy's time, but at all times, including ours today, there have been numerous dads who have not stepped up in this. That for whatever reason, they don't step into this awesome God-given role. And in many cases, it's the mom or the child that's just left to fend for themselves spiritually. And this is incredibly sad, and it's outside of God's design, and it is absolutely less than ideal. But listen to me, it is not hopeless. It's not. And so if you're in a situation this morning that's outside of ideal, I want you to find hope in Timothy's story. His story wasn't ideal. His scenario wasn't ideal, but God still used it. Because whenever the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. God can redeem anything. This investment in Timothy's life started in the home, and then it was passed on and continued by Paul. Right? Paul took the foundation that had been laid in Timothy's, by Timothy's mom and grandma, and then he poured more into it. He, he unpacked the scriptures at a deeper level for Timothy. He taught, them, taught him how all of them point to Jesus. 
He then uh, traveled with Timothy, lived with him, showed him uh, how to follow Jesus day to day. He taught him how the word of God is part of that rhythm. He just kept continuing on the investment that began in the home. And both of these investments were done by people who loved Timothy. It's why Paul reminds him, remember who did this for you. Remember who taught you. Remember who poured into you. Remember who cared about you. It's the people who are for you, Timothy. It's the people who are on your side, the people who want what's best for you because they genuinely care for you and they're on your team. Now, just a quick aside this morning. If we don't care about people, everything else we do is moot. We could, as a church, teach them the most valuable truths there are, but if we don't care about them, they're not going to care about anything we say. This is a crucial ingredient. And then lastly, this investment was to be then continued on by Timothy. It's the reason for the letter. It's the reason for the appeal. Not just to look back, Timothy, but also look ahead. The investment that's been poured into your life, Timothy, I want you to press forward with it. Remember what's been poured into you and then go and pour into others. Now, why, why do I take the time to unpack all this for you? Because this is the model that God has prescribed for discipleship. This is the design that he calls us as his people to. It's why it's one of the pillars of this place. The investment of God's word begins in the home. I want you to know, as Paul said, from infancy, Timothy, you knew the scriptures, right? It started at a young age. And so listen to me, mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. The starting point of a spiritual investment is you. You are to be the first to point your kids to Christ. You'd be the first to read God's word to them. You'd be the first to answer their questions. You'd be the first to model this faith for them. You'd be the first, most consistent investor of God's truth into their life. If, if you attempting to talk about God or his, his word in your home feels weird or awkward right now, then you've got some work to do. It means you don't do it enough. These conversations need to be a part of your daily ongoing rhythm. And once that's in place, you then, part of the design is then you then become part of the local church. Where that church then comes alongside you, just as Paul did with Timothy. And, and, and continues that investment. It supplements the investment you've poured into your children, right? That others who care for you and love you, others who care and love for your kids, they pour the scriptures and the faith into them as well. And then ultimately that builds to a point where all young believers can now disciple others and take what's been poured into them and then go invest in others. The design is this, developing disciples who develop disciples who develop disciples who develop disciples. This is how God has designed his church. And it's one of the chief, most important investments in that discipleship process is his word. Secondly, it's the word of God that calls us to salvation. Look at verse 15 again. You know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you know why it is that we know God's design for the church? That I can speak so confidently about that this morning? Do you know why it is that we know we've been designed for community? Why we know we've been created to worship? Why we know our roles as Christ's ambassadors? It's because God's word tells us. Do you know how we know the teachings of Jesus? How we know the gospel? How we know what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't? It's because of the living, active word of God. That's why. Romans chapter 10, Paul's writing about this, and he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a powerful verse, but then he immediately asks, How can they call on someone they haven't heard of? And how can they hear without someone telling them? And he builds to this conclusion, right? So faith comes through hearing, and hearing through what? Through the word of Christ. 
He says the same here to, to, to Timothy. It's through the sacred scriptures that you get wisdom for salvation. It's the scriptures that show us the holiness of God. It's the scriptures that show us just how far short we fall of that great standard. It's the scriptures that show us just how great our need is for a savior. And it's the scriptures that show us how great a savior Jesus is. It's the scriptures that unpack for us the gospel story that Jesus, though he was in divine nature, God himself, took on human form. He lived the sinless life that we have not and could not. It's the scriptures that tell us that he then went to the cross to pay the penalty for sin for any who believe in him and that he rose from the dead. It's the same word of God that tells us that we are saved by that, by grace and through faith and not of works, right? That it's only through complete trust and reliance and in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection that we could know God. It's the scriptures that tell us these incredibly important truths. If we didn't have his word, we wouldn't know him. If we didn't have his word, we wouldn't know what he requires. We wouldn't have salvation without God's word because we wouldn't know how to do it. We wouldn't know how it's offered to us. We, not only that, it's, it's the word of God that he uses to draw us to himself. I don't know how much you've tracked this, but whenever I've been sharing my faith with someone, there's always like this, this mark of no return. And they never know it when it's happening. But I've observed it every time that whenever someone starts genuinely reading God's word and consistently reading it and they look into it, it's just a matter of time. God always uses his word to draw people to himself. The game's over. Scriptures call us to salvation. Thirdly, the word of God is fully sufficient for all of ministry. Look at verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You want to know why we're so invested in the Bible around here? Those two verses tell you. It's got literally everything that you need for ministry. First, we're told that Scripture is inspired. Right? This literally means that it's been breathed out by God. The Bible is 66 books. A variety of human authors over multiple centuries, but there's one author that was pinning it throughout the entire process. Every human author, while they were writing their parts, were inspired by God's Holy Spirit, given the words to write. And while that's seemingly implausible to some people, it actually holds up to critical theory. Because it's more implausible, by the way. That somewhere between 35 and 40 human authors in different centuries, in different historical contexts, in different cultures would all weave a story with a consistent theme, message, and point throughout. It makes no sense unless there's one author behind all of it. The way everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, while those human authors had no idea he even existed. The way everything in the New Testament points back to Jesus' life and ministry and, and then looks ahead to his return. The way the book starts in Genesis with a garden and a tree of life and rivers and ends in Revelation with the same garden and a same tree of life and rivers in their full redeemed state. All of it points to one consistent author throughout. And we know who that author was, don't we? It was the one consistent being throughout all time. God's word is God revealing himself to us. He inspired every single line on every single page. And the ramifications of that are powerful. Look at how Timothy is encouraged to take that inspired word and use it for the church. First, he's commanded to teach it. At the same way that he was taught, he's now to teach others. It's why we're doing what we're doing right now. Right? We want you to know what the Bible says. And just as importantly, we want you to know what it doesn't say. 
Right? Because if the Bible is God revealing himself to us, if in the Bible we see God calling us to very specific things, then we need to be able to recognize as his followers what is from the Bible and what isn't. And to do so, you must know it. And to know it, you must read it and be taught from it. And so Timothy, teach the church the word. Secondly, use the word to rebuke. You know what this means? It just means to correct those who are in sin. Now think about this. If Timothy is actually correct those who are in wrong, who are in sin, he must need a standard for morality to base this off of, right? And guess what? In God's word, we have it. The standard for morality is God. It's the end of story. He's the standard for morality. He gets to determine what's right and what's wrong, and nobody else gets to. I don't get to determine that. You don't get to determine that. Your feelings don't get to determine that. Culture doesn't get to determine that. No human gets to determine that. Only the creator of the universe gets to make that decision. And in his word, right, he reveals to us what is pleasing to him and what isn't. He reveals to us his good design for our flourishing. And as his followers, if we step outside of his good boundaries and design, we can use the word of God to call each other back into it. And by the way, we must because it's no good for anyone if I come up to somebody and say, well, I don't like your life choices. Well, who cares what I think, right? It's irrelevant whether I like your life choices or not. But if I can point them to the word of God and say, this is what the Lord Almighty says, that carries a whole lot more weight. Or at least it definitely should. Timothy is to use this word for teaching. He's to use it for rebuking believers. He's to use it for correcting. This coincides with teaching. Because since the beginning of time, and yes, in Timothy's time, there were false teachers who have misrepresented God. They taught things that were beneficial to them and claimed they were speaking on God's behalf and to know what is actually from the Lord and what isn't. There is a need to have a source of truth to compare everything to and line up everything with, which is why, again, God has given us his word. So that whenever somebody believes something, Whenever somebody shares something, whenever somebody teaches something that does not line up with the Bible here in the local church, we are to use God's word to graciously bring them back into line and correct that. And then lastly, he's commanded to use it for training in righteousness. Do you know what that Greek word literally means? It means child training. It's taking babies. It's taking brand new believers and training them how to live like Jesus would want them to. By the way, this was handed to us by Jesus in his great commission. Matthew chapter 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. And I emphasize this for you. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Right there at the heart of the central mission given to the church is this. Make disciples, not make believers. And here's the difference, right? It is incredibly exciting incredibly exciting to see someone come to faith in Jesus Christ isn't it it's so awesome to see them follow him in obedience to the baptism waters as we celebrated last week that that you cannot I cannot express you how exciting that is but listen that is absolutely not the finish line and when we see that as a church our work is just beginning we are now to come alongside them to show them how to live this life for Jesus, to tra- teach them everything that he has observed that we command, right? And, and, and everything that we command, or everything that he commanded that we observe. And our biggest resource in that is what? It's the word of God. Now, I'm not sure there's another human that knew the struggles and trials and pains of ministry more than the Apostle Paul. The guy knows how hard 
this life is that he is pushing Timothy into. He knows how difficult the calling of the Lord is on Timothy's life. He knows all the costs that come with a life of ministry. And yet I want you to look again at his confidence in God's word. Look at verse 17. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know what Paul's saying there? He's saying the word of God is sufficient for all ministry. And from the scriptures alone, we have all that we need to be mature and equipped and prepped for every good work that God would call us to as a church. And so listen, I hope, I hope that you have in your life a consistent fight, a consistent uh, prayer, consistent striving to keep God's word held in the highest esteem in your life. Because you will need that because everything in this world is going to try to pull you from it. Everything in your life is going to try to distract you from it. Everything will tell you to question it or belittle it. And there's never been a more powerful, useful, loving, important gift given to you by anyone than God giving you his word. And all of that should lead to one logical place this morning. And simply that it's just a place of resolve. Every week that I preach to you, I try to give you multiple application points. I'm not going to do that today. I just want us to sit in this word for a little bit. I want us to see here, as Paul writes this letter, the, the resolve that was formed in Paul, the resolve he's trying to get to form in Timothy, and then try to have the same resolve our own. Because after years of investment, after decades of ministry, Paul has one final charge to hand to his son in the faith. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus, who's going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, and rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience in teaching. I, I, I'm going to argue it would be really hard for a charge to carry more weight than that one. First, you got the context that this is the final letter from your mentor who knows he's about to die. All right, if you read this, as Timothy. And then he charges you, calling, inviting God and his son Jesus into the charge and reminding him, oh, by the way, the same Jesus is going to judge everyone. And then he charges you in light of Jesus' kingdom and his coming so that you can't get more weight. And then this is the charge. Preach the word, Timothy. Timothy, build the basis of your life and your ministry on the word of God. I want you to preach it in season and out. You know what he means by that? Preach the word when people are supportive of you preaching the word and preach the word when they're not. Use this word to rebuke believers who have strayed, to correct those who are teaching the air and encourage with great patience all your fellow sinners who are striving to follow Jesus too. And just keep teaching it. Teach it again and again and again and again. Teach it, preach it, read it, proclaim it as long as the Lord gives you breath. Charges for Timothy to build his entire ministry from the foundation of the word of God. And Paul says this is a solemn charge. And so I want to make a solemn vow to you this morning. And to anybody who is listening to this. That here at FBN we receive this charge to Timothy as if it was spoken directly to us. So we commit to you that as a church, as long as we're here, we will build this place on the foundation of the word of God. It is our source of truth. It's our source of morality. It's how we know God, and by it we will share the gospel. We will proclaim it. We will teach it. We will invest it into your heart and your mind and your soul every single chance that you give us because we are for you. I want you to know that, you, that your staff here and your elders and your ministry directors and leaders here, we want you to know that we love you and we care deeply about you and your family. So I commit to you that if you ever come into this place, we will not waste your time. 
We will not waste your time by trying to get you to be like us. We will not waste your time by investing into you our own opinions, our own truth. Instead, we will point you consistently and fervently to Jesus and his awesome, inerrant, authoritative word. And we know, okay, we're fully aware that at times for some people that's going to invite some pushback. It's going to invite criticism. It's going to invite disdain because they don't like everything this word says. But I want you to know, Paul prepared Timothy and the word prepares us for that too. Look at verse 3. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. I want you to know this morning that as we proclaim to you the word of God, it is not our job to apologize for God or defend him. It's not my role to try, or it's not my desire either, to try and get God's word to mold to the whims and pressures of the culture that we live in. We believe that God knew what he was doing when he created the designs in order he did. And we believe that whenever we operate within his good design, people experience the fullness of joy and flourishing. And we love them far too much to compromise on what God says in his word and support them experiencing other, anything other than the fullness of what God has for them. Because think about it, if you actually believe that God is good, if you actually believe that God is for us, if you actually believe that he knows what he's doing when he created us, if you actually believe that he's on our side, you have to care so very little about people to compromise his good standards in order to win their applause or approval for you. Everything, man, every human being carries such tremendous significance and value and worth. They are made in the image of God, and we are called to love them and pour ourselves out for them. We will never devalue them to the point of compromising what God calls them to. So as a church, we resolve to always teach to you the word of God. We resolve to always point you to it. We resolve to stand on it, to stand with it. It will remain our authority. And for you as individuals, this is our prayer for you. That you would have the same resolve, that you would resolve first just to know the word. That that would be your desire, to know this book. That you would read it, that, that investment in teaching would start in your home. That you would be encouraged and continued in this by this church. That you would resolve to get to the point where you can then invest in others. That that would be a driving resolve of your life, to know the word and share it with others. And secondly, that you would resolve to align yourself with God's word. Most of the Bible is only understood once it's obeyed. And the reason for that is to often to obey God requires us setting aside our desires. It requires us setting aside our feelings and our sinful nature. And that is a step that very few people get past. But I'm telling you, all who do, they find a much fuller experience of joy and freedom than they did before. And so our prayer for you who call FBN home is that you would stand on the word of God. We pray this often. I want you to know we pray this often for our young people and students because the assault on God's word and his standards have certainly intensified. But what's often lost is this. First Peter chapter 1, all flesh, that means all humans, are like grass. And all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Every single person who believes in God's word will go into the ground and the word will continue. Every single person who belittles or criticizes God's word will go into the ground and the word will continue. 
it is incredibly unwise, incredibly unwise to measure the Bible to us. It's incredibly unwise to hold the Bible up against our culture to determine its validity or worth. What is incredibly wise is to measure ourselves to the Bible. Because his word and his word alone will endure forever. There hasn't been a single culture, a single people, or single phase of history that's in agreement with each other. But the one consistent voice through all time will be the word of God. And so if you call this place home, if you allow it, us to be your home while you're in college, we want this commitment to be clear and overt to you. We love you enough that we will always point you to the word of God. And we love you enough that we will always encourage you to engage with it and align with it yourself. It's our prayer that you will realize how valuable a gift it is. That so much unnecessary pain leaves my life. So much additional joy comes into it whenever I line myself up with God's word. And so may we as a church never, ever, ever stop striving for that. May we resolve that that will be a driving force in our life. Let's pray. Father, your word wouldn't be a word from you if it was 